This is BTS with CTV Behind the Scenes, Behind the Stories. We bring you from the CTV Vancouver Newsroom. My name is Penny Daflos, and I'll be your guide behind the curtain to how newsrooms interact with social media. Whether it's traditional print publications, radio, or a TV station, there's not a single newsroom in the country that doesn't rely, at least in part, on getting their stories watched, read, and heard through social media channels. But getting our material out to and consuming information from places like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram takes a lot of work. Here to discuss the ins and outs are social media associate producer Nick Wells and assignment desk editor Sean Michaels. Thank you for your debut appearances on BTS. Indeed, rookie appearance. Yeah. This is a brand new experience for me. So I wanted to talk with you guys about something that is now associated with the new social media. Everyone seems to consume their news as much on social media as they do just straight directly through our websites. If it weren't for Twitter and Facebook, I don't even know how much traffic we would lose because it's so instrumental now in getting people to access our stories and our coverage and all sorts of stuff. But I brought both of you on because you have very different perspectives in terms of social media. Nick, you are responsible for putting our material on social media so that our viewers, readers, listeners can consume it. Whereas Sean, you're the guy who's kind of sifting through all that stuff that's coming towards us to to get us more news. Um, So Nick, let's start out with you. What are the things that you think get the most traction when it comes to the stories that we put on social media? What, what do you think really engages with people? I think it's those kind of short, like snappy stories that people can kind of get a quick reaction to. So you're looking at, uh, today at least, we had the transit announcement. So that funding, it wasn't really new. Like It was, it was a re-announcement. Yeah, but we're all here together now. <laughs> So you instantly got the, this has been already announced. This is like, this isn't new. So people, on our Facebook Live video at least, you're seeing people like kind of live reaction of people just saying, no, this isn't new. And so it's interesting having that because you're getting almost that kind of instantaneous feedback of a story, which then kind of helps you when you're covering a story as well. You're looking like, people don't think this is new. What can, how can we present a story? But also on the flip side, when people really engage with something in a positive way, uh, especially if nobody else has it, then that tells us that there's an appetite for something that we're doing so we can give a a follow-up story or something more in-depth that, you know, before we wouldn't have known what would get that kind of engagement from people. Totally. You look at the story of... um just J50, the uh, the killer whale that's been off the BC coast for, oh God, I think the past month or so, and the kind of live coverage that has accompanied that. If you look at it online, there's so much more engagement when you get these animal stories and you get um, kind of the people coming out of the woodwork saying, like, oh, I care about this whale. And it kind of helps um, add more nuance and more kind of uh, background to stories that might have been lost before in, in the um, kind of scientific minutiae. And Sean, on the flip side for that, I mean, we've had so many examples. I'm thinking the Thai cave, Thai cave rescue. Uh, we had people come forward to us and say, oh, hey, there's a, a local guy who's involved with that. You know, there can be these big stories that then we end up um, getting information from our viewers that we never would have had before. Yeah, you know, social media is a conduit which people can access. You know, news broadcasters are more readily available and easier. Um, you know, the flip side being, though, I'd imagine that, you know, when I look at breaking news and the impact that social media can have, Part of the problem is making sure that you've got the right eyes on the right social media. I would equate it to maybe something like a giant grocery store with none of the ingredients listed on anything. So it's full of stuff, and some of it is really, really good for you, but some of it is really, really bad. And unless you know what you're looking at, it's really hard to disseminate what is the crap food versus what is the quality. And the same thing, I think, applies to social media in any situation. It's being able to have the knowledge and the experience to be able to sift through and pick apart the good stuff that you want to keep and you want to you know, utilize and connect with people on and the other stuff that doesn't belong and can easily send you down the wrong path with bad information. 
And that takes a lot of time because we've had people send us all sorts of stuff that sounds very interesting, that sounds very compelling. But then once you start doing the work, it, it's garbage. It's it's either lies or misunderstanding, misinterpretation of something that's happened. But we have to spend hours and hours and hours trying to tell fact from fiction and you know what's subject to interpretation to figure out what's actually not just newsworthy, but it's, it's just true. I think uh, you make a really good point. It, uh, timely enough that tomorrow um, representatives from Twitter, uh, Facebook, uh, and other social media platforms will be testifying in Washington. And as a little experiment, the New York Times put up today samples of uh, Facebook pages that have been taken down that were made to look like legitimate sites. And you had to click on the icon that was the true web page. And I went through the test, and I think I maybe got 50%. And it's amazing to see how sophisticated the disinformation campaigns are that are out there. So it's not like you're dealing with, you know, community reporting that may be missing a few facts. I mean, these are very sophisticated, organized disinformation campaigns run by governments and companies that know what we're looking for and know how to tailor their disinformation to make it appealing to us, who then gather that news and then disseminate it out to the people. And so it's almost like a new generation of threat. It's not just bad information. It's dangerous information that is deliberately put in front of you to create problems for your viewers. And I think you saw this last week, too, with um, the way things can go viral, like the Warren Buffett tweet. I don't know if how many people saw that, but it was claimed to be 10 steps that Warren Buffett says he uses for success. So it got, like, thousands of retweets, thousands of likes. There was no verified uh, icon next to his name. It wasn't him. It was some guy who's just screwing around and decided, I'm going to tweet this. He got athletes retweeting him. I'm pretty sure he got people. The advice was good, too. The advice was great, but I'm pretty sure he got people in this building who probably liked it as well. Like, I looked at him like, oh, this seems kind of basic, but, you know, dude's a billionaire, so he must do something right. But it's it's a kind of a testament to social media how quickly those things can go viral. And if we don't sift through it, like Sean was talking about, you can end up with a lot of egg on your face. Well, and then on the flip side, sometimes there's stuff that seems like it's baloney, but is actually true. We had, um, just last week, somebody sent us something about a mystery illness in Surrey, and all sorts of people were getting sick in the Guildford area, and there was some sort of terrible outbreak, and nobody was talking about it, but some nurses found out, and so we got a screen grab of a conversation, and you and I were working on this, Sean, and then it was like, okay, well, first step is Fraser Health, because they're going to have to tell us what is going on, and it turns out that there was a kernel of truth to this, because everyone started, don't eat at this restaurant, don't, don't go to that place, and it turned out that there is a small outbreak of Legionnaire's disease. There's a Legionella bacteria somewhere, uh, but the, the facts are what are really important, and Legionella bacteria can be just about anywhere. It's not just, um, and in this case, it probably wasn't from eating at a restaurant or somewhere. It's probably from an air conditioning system, and it could be anywhere from a office building to a residential tower, a leisure center. It could be just about anywhere, but it started with this bit of, really, it was misinformation. People saying, don't try not to eat in Guilford because people are getting sick, but it turns out that there is something going on. It's just completely different than what the rumor mill would have us believe. And I think that's partially what makes social media such a, a very useful and a dangerous tool. I mean, in today's modern society, there is this push to be involved, to sort of either have your own sense of individualized fame or to be a part of something to give you that sense of belonging. And social media provides an immediate access point for people to jump into something, whether it's an interesting story, something happening in their community, and that human drive to want to belong to get involved sometimes supersedes the need to check your facts and to pump the brakes a little bit and make sure... It 
is this something that I should be jumping into? And part of the problem that we face is this constant pressure to get that information out there, make sure it's timely, make sure it's accurate, you know, pressure from the competition, but still making sure that you're honoring, you know, the pillars of journalism and making sure you've got your facts straight. And so there's a lot of external pressure that wasn't there 10, 15 years ago in this business. And on top of that, having to sift through bad information to get the good information that's there and fighting that rush with people wanting to get involved, pressures from your bosses, pressure from the competition. And so again, it really, the more that the pressure is mounted, the greater need there is for a a slower, calmer, cool head when it comes to looking at this information. Because once it starts, it balloons and then people comment and people think it was this story, but it actually happened in this town. And, you know, facts get conflated and things spin out of control very quickly. And then not only are you trying to chase the facts of the story, you're trying to unravel this giant ball of disinformation to really get to the core of what you're looking at to begin with. And again, that's where things slow down and you feel that pressure and, you know, mistakes are made because you have all these new external factors mounting on top of you constantly. In a previous life, I worked for the national arm of CTV News, and we saw this a lot with... um uh, Amber Alerts and Missing Childs, all these stories that we put on Facebook and say, so-and-so kid missing in Vancouver, B.C. And then people, good-willed people, like they have great intentions. They're like, oh, is that, he was last seen at a gas station. No, that was a kid six months ago. So then you have to, we actually started putting up um, like briefs at the top of every kind of Amber Alert story saying, no, this is not related to this case. Please see the new story here. Because people have good intentions, but Sean's right. These things can completely kind of explode just out of the blue. And it's hard getting these facts because then you get people saying, this is fake. This already happened. Or like, this is a different missing kid. And it's kind of moderating that and making sure people are still aware when there is a serious issue going on and then they're not referring to something else. Well, and it's hard with a platform like ours because people can start commenting on our Facebook stories and all of a sudden things get out of control because these threads build and all sorts of comments get made and then that keeps getting pushed up somebody's newsfeed. And I think a lot of it comes from a good place. I think we talk a lot about social media being this terrible tool of malice, which it can be. Um, But I think of how many times I have seen a missing person uh, photo go viral online. Uh, There has not been a police bulletin about it. And I have talked to more than one police agency about it to say, hey, why have you not put this out? Why are we hearing about this from the family or grassroots effort? We should be hearing it from you. A, police have, in the city of Vancouver, I I think it's about 100 people a day are reported missing to them. They can't just put out something every single day, uh, even even one a day. It has to be pretty high risk for them to put out. But second, and this is what makes me really sad, and I think more people should know about, sometimes people are in hiding from a domestic violence situation. Sometimes there are all sorts of factors at play in a family member or a friend or a partner can be looking for that person that does not want to be found. And the police are trying to keep that person away from this person who's trying to find them. And here this well-meaning social media mob is thinking they're doing the right thing when really they could be facilitating something they really don't know anything about. Yeah, it, it sounds, sorry to interrupt. I would say I think that's part of the ongoing problem that I think a lot of us face is this idea of headline journalism. People feel that they're engaged because they have read a headline on a story. And again, 
Like any good piece of journalism, it's always the facts. It's the facts that get in the way of the story that people want to tell versus the story that they should tell. And, you know, using the example of missing persons, you know, invariably there are lots of external factors that go into whether or not an announcement is made or it isn't made. But again, it goes back to that rush to want to get involved, that idea to, you know, I can help out, I can put this message out there. And so it's a lot of well-intentioned people. But again, you know, are people utilizing the tool the best way that, you know, it serves their community? And sometimes that rush to get involved gets in the way of good things. And that rushing involved can also condemn people, too. There's a case a couple weeks ago, um, might be closer than that, in the U.S. where um, uh, security cameras and houses caught this woman seemingly just wearing a blanket going and knocking on doors and trying doors. And so news outlets put that out there saying, have you seen this, like, crazy footage? Uh, police came out, I think, the next day and said this woman was actually in a domestic incident. She had been... Um, in a situation with her boyfriend who had I think was arrested and she was looking to escape she'd been trying those doors and knocking doors to get people awake so that they could call the cops right and so you get that kind of that visceral reaction of like oh look at look at this woman trying to break into houses and then it's again what Sean's talking about that kind of taking that time to step back get all those facts and that is sometimes the downside of social media is there's that instantaneous reaction where it does require uh, a more kind of nuanced more kind of thoughtful approach and that's honestly that's what the job is now right is making sure that we have all the all the information before we put it out on social media making sure that we have a balance to it it's so frustrating though because i feel like some people don't care they don't want the balance they just want something quick and easy and digestible and to get that little rush of oh i did something good i I sent out a, a you know a retweet of a missing kid or whatever and there isn't that respect for that balance anymore because people Life is so complicated, and I feel we all have problems. We're all rushed. We're all everything else. We don't want to think about the nuance. We don't think want to think about the gray areas and what it's going to take to actually engage with something on a deeper level. So it may sound existential on one level, but you know, if I've got a minute and a half story to put on the air, I really have to think about how much time is going into each clip and overall how balanced is the piece and how do I weave all this information together, not so that it's a, a one-sided advocacy piece for something, but so that it's a balanced piece of journalism. Just the same way that, Nick, you have to write something to, to put online or, or help package something, or Sean, you're trying to do research for to figure out if something is a story to assign to a reporter. There's so much ambiguity out there, and I feel like it's getting lost in a complicated world where we want things to be simpler. I think one of the um, struggles that you face in media is that um, credibility is the currency of journalism. If you're not credible, then you're not useful. And, you know, one of the issues that I think any newsroom struggles with is when you try to tell a story, you're collecting all of these facts, all of this information, you're trying to pare it down and then package it and regurgitate it out to your audience in a very user-friendly way. Invariably, a lot of stories that you'll end up covering, you'll touch on them for a couple of days and they go away. But so often, there's so much more that goes into the story that you can't just cover in a minute 30. And I think part of a a demon I think media has created itself is this appetite for small amounts of information but don't give me too much and don't overcomplicate it because at the end of the day I'm not sure the audience is willing to invest the kind of time that it takes to truly understand the complexities of many issues which is why you can have very polarizing events around political campaigns when you know there's this appearance of very polar opposite sides 
But until you really dig into the details and you find those commonalities, you know, the story doesn't appear as sexy as it once was. And I think as long as people want to draw in little circles and get on their own little team and stick to their own facts, it makes it harder to give information to everybody, meet everybody's needs to feel like they're being heard and their side of the story is being told and still be fair and balanced. And I think one of the issues that social media has also created is this appetite for just just give me enough. Make me feel like I know enough about the story, but don't tell me more than I feel like I have an appetite for. And so you're always struggling to find that balance and still be a credible journalist and make TV. And at the same time, though, I feel like maybe something is better than nothing. Maybe if, if people just get a little bit, even if it's a brief on something, a brief write-up or whatever, at least they're engaging with their world instead of just putting on the blinders and saying, I'm just going to turn on Netflix when I go home and watch some, you know, prepackaged whatever piece of stuff that, you know, it's good for us all to relax, but obviously the three of us sitting at this table right now feel the world around us is really important to engage with. So I feel, I'm really conflicted because I feel like people should want to know more, but at the same time, I do appreciate that there is an appetite to know anything at all. So it's one of those things you kind of, on the news buffet, as we often discuss, sometimes there's broccoli. You got to, you know, take a little bit of broccoli, even if it's a little florette. Let's just, at least a florette is better than nothing. It's tough too, because I'm, I'm increasingly seeing myself who as someone who lives a lot of their life online I, and I don't always like that I like to be able to turn off but the kind of the demand of the news now and the way people and viewers are they want to know stuff throughout the day and so you can't do what you did before whereas at x amount of time I'm done this is it you're kind of constantly checking things throughout the day and giving readers and viewers in this case uh, kind of what they want so at least they as Sean said you're trying to give them a little bit of a full picture even if it's in kind of bite-sized morsels well, and, and part of the challenge, too, is getting it out there quickly. Uh, you know, it, we'd obviously rather be right, and, and we'd also like to be first, but sometimes it's more important to wait a little bit and get the correct information out there, a little bit more comprehensive. But you're right, there is a lot of pressure. This is happening now. Let's get it out right away instead of in, like, little bite-sized pieces as opposed to waiting till 6 o'clock and having a, a more comprehensive understanding of an issue or being able to talk to more sides or, or whatever else. Yeah, and Penny, you and I kind of talked about this last week with... Uh, a shooting in Manitoba, a police shooting. Uh, a cop was injured in a serious incident, as RCMP called it. Uh, other outlets right away said he had been shot and then issued a retraction about an hour later saying, oh, we don't actually know if he's been shot. And then an hour after that saying, police said, yes, he's been shot. But that kind of quick rush to say something definitive without all those facts is, can be hard. And that's the fine balance of social media too because you want to be out there. You want to be showcasing your outlets um, news content video whatever you want to call it but you also want to be correct and that's it's a it's a balancing act but it's that's the goal at least and in the manitoba case it was assumed that it was a shooting because there had been uh, shots fired. We, that was the, the tweet from Manitoba RCMP. There had been shots fired and there was an officer injured and the assumption was, well, the officer had been shot. But these suspects also took off really quickly in a couple vehicles. So that officer could have easily been struck by one of those vehicles. It could have been some other circumstance where they were injured in this big confrontation that had nothing to do with gunfire. He could have fallen and hit his head. Like, genuinely, he could have been jumping onto the car and then maybe hit his head or they opened a car door on him. Something like that. Like, it's there's so many possibilities. And there was a quick rush to get something out quickly and try to have that kind of juicy headline. And then there was retraction. Then there was back out again. And fortunately, that wasn't us. But it was just something that you have to be very mindful of when you are kind of living in the online world now. 
You know, Nick makes a good point. It's almost a bit like the uh, the tail wagging the dog. I think something that we always have to be aware of is that the mandate of social media and the mandate of journalism is very different. Most social media is designed to attract like-minded people. You're delivering a product that's attractive to a particular audience, and so you're continually tailoring that product to make sure that the audience you have stays and to draw on more like-minded thinking people, where the original you know pillars of journalism are about being you know neutral being fair, balanced, and nowhere is that a mandate of whether it's Twitter or Facebook, any other social media platform. They are profit-driven enterprises that live and die on numbers, and those numbers are people and retweets and likes. And so again, when we feel this pressure that now society has determined that this is where people need to get their information from, but they're not applying the rules of journalism, again, it becomes much harder to fight against this growing social norm that people can look at a tweet and say, oh, shots fired, police, you know, that their mandate is to get that headline out there, get likes, get it retweeted, and put in all those key words. They're not sending out that tweet to make sure that the best information has been sent to make sure everybody has it. And so, again, the mandate is different. And so you're kind of getting a little bit of an apples and oranges mix from what the mission is from people putting out those social media announcements and the mandate for the media that then has to pick through them and then do something with it. And so, again, I don't know that there's really a magical answer other than there isn't an answer. But it's a very complex problem that continually requires a reexamination of where is the information coming from, why am I getting this information? Why are they sending it to me? The fact that algorithms created by Facebook and Twitter will push certain stories based on certain needs, based on certain advertising contracts, based on where you live. And so, again, people can look at what's on social media and believe that this is a representation of what is happening in my community in a fair and balanced approach. And it can very well be tailored based on algorithms written in California to make sure that the Vancouver audience is seeing this kind of content because it serves a greater purpose that has nothing to do with journalism. And these are the little bits that get lost in the details of examination of news and social media that really, I think, fuels the underlying problem that is eroding away the credibility of both mainstream journalism and uh, social media journalism. It's the thing, right? You can you try not to, you try to make sure that it's not just an echo chamber. That everybody you follow on Twitter, for example, um, adhere to all your beliefs and everything. You're trying to make it a bit more separate and just a little bit more diversified. Which was, as Sean says, that was the goal of journalism in the first place: is to present unbiased, fair news. And I think some of us in social media, and which is something that I think everybody could probably work on, is making sure you have those diverse views to at least understand why people are reacting that way to that story. You don't have to believe they're correct. That's that's up to you. That's your prerogative. But um, I think it's important to, especially for us in the media, to kind of take a look at why, to make sure that we're not in an echo chamber, make sure we're not just saying things that we know tailors to a certain audience, make sure it's like, oh, we like this. This is, so we're going to just keep repeating it ad nauseum. Well, and it, that feedback and that kind of back and forth that we have with our audience now that we didn't used to have before, it can be frustrating for people who are only reading a headline or a tweet and not engaging with the, the full body of work that you've done on a specific story. But it is, and so it can be, there's a lot of frustration there. Let's not, uh, let's not sugarcoat that. But I think it is also important to know, I, I'm just thinking back to a few years ago, we had a teacher strike in this province. And I remember stories that I worked really hard on to be balanced and fair and as comprehensive as possible. And I had people 
tweeting at me, why are you on the side of government? And just as many people tweeting at me, why are you an apologist for the teachers and you're just advocating on behalf of the teachers? Exact same story. I'm not even talking my body of coverage as a whole for that issue. I'm talking the exact same story. And I received equal criticism for both sides that I was biased. So... For me, it was a real eye-opener to kind of have that real-time feedback, but at the same time, it also made me think, like, am I ever going to make anybody happy? Well, I'm not here to make them happy. I'm here to be balanced. And if I have equal complaints on both sides, I guess that means I'm probably being balanced. Yeah, I think I've been called left-wing shill and a right-wing hack, probably on the same story. Or at least both have been called both of those in, in my time period on social media. So both, you can't win sometimes. There's just no winning, yeah. Thank you both for your time. You're welcome. Anytime. Yeah, thank you for having us. And thank you for joining us on BTS with CTV. Is there a topic you'd like us to cover on a future podcast? Email me, bts at ctv.ca. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe for more insights, tidbits, and the stories behind the stories. I'm Penny Daflos. 